0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Most of the 20th century, 19th century, 18th century, society was so hierarchical. The church, the military, school, everything was so hierarchical. That now for this century, we're, we're, we're sort of going to the, the other end of the spectrum. And now everything is a network, right? Mm-hmm. The internet is a network. Computers are networked together. Even the institutions of society are becoming a little more, you know, flat and egalitarian in, in some cases. Yeah. This is the funny thing. In a way, my work is a provocation because it says, wait a minute, you guys. Networks are wonderful. Yes, they're good. Let's use them. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are still some uses for hierarchies. And that that's kind of controversial in this day and age. <laughs> but for your specific point, here's what I'll say is, I think for most people's second brain, which to me is not just one app, I really, I really insist that your second brain has to encompass all the different digital tools you use. I think for some of them, networks are more powerful. For others, you have to use hierarchies.
0: Thank you, Srini. Good to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a second book up out, uh, the follow-up to Building a Second Brain called The Para Method, all of which we will get into. But I was trying to think back to what I have and hadn't asked you before, because this is your third time on the show. Uh, and I realized, I never asked you this, what was the very first job that you ever had and how did that end up impacting what you've done with your life?
1: Yes, yes. You know, I've never been, by the way, I've never been on a show three times. This is the very first.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> anytime I have somebody back multiple times, it's because I have a lot of respect for the work they do and they've had a profound impact on my own thinking. So,
1: yeah, same, same. Uh, I feel like this is coming back home because in some ways this is how it all started. That, that first episode was maybe the first podcast episode that really went far and kind of opened doors for me. So, uh, so, so thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Um, let's see. What was your question again? First job. Yes. So it depends how you define job. But I would say um, the first thing that I got money for was in high school. Um, I would drive around in my little beat up Honda Civic, uh, mostly to my parents' friends' houses or people from church. And I would fix their computers, much as I had always done at home for my own parents. Uh, charge them, I think, like a hundred bucks for a few hours, you know, being there to, to, to fix wow. their... It's funny, I would always fix it the same way, which is I would just wipe their hard drive and reinstall Windows. That was my one solution.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I know how to do that. The charger, you got paid a hundred bucks for that? Pretty good for high school, right? It is damn good for high school and like very little work.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would take a while because computers were so slow. It might take two or three hours, but I would just start the process and play video games for most of the time.
0: Wow, so you basically, your first job was getting paid a hundred bucks to play video games is what you're really
1: telling us. Yes, yeah, I think what I learned from that was, I mean, I learned so much. It was my first time dealing with customers, having to, you know, listen to them and kind of provide a solution. It was my first time having to explain computers because often I would, it's not just enough to do the job, you have to kind of tell them what the issue is and and why you have to wipe their hard drive and reassure them that you would save their files and, you know, promise them of how much faster it would be, all these different kinds of things. yeah. Um, and I think I also learned how incredibly poorly most people, um, even well-educated people, worldly people, highly capable people with, you know, with high powered careers, um, who are, you know, the kind of person who lives in Orange County where I grew up is, is, is like that, how they, they just utterly don't understand the first thing about computers.
0: Yeah. Well, I I mean, I think that that really kind of sets us up perfectly to talk uh, about the new book. But one thing that I, I wonder, you know, as I was saying to you before, I felt like, uh, you know, I really loved the first book. Whereas, you know, you and I were just saying that this book really probably wasn't meant for me. It's meant much more for the, the second brain beginner. But talk to me about like why this was sort of the natural follow-up to the previous one.
1: Yes, so there's, there's a few reasons that um, I came out with the second book at all. And especially so soon, you know, it was about a year after yeah, that. I noticed one.
0: that too. I remember when it showed up, I was like, because I remember when you got the book deal, I thought, oh, this is going to be a little while. And then I saw it on my doorstep. I was like, holy shit, that was fast. It was six
1: months from the first conversation with my publisher in February to the release in in August, like record speed. Yeah. Uh, so there's a few reasons. Okay. Um, I was just listening to the feedback and the reactions to the first book. And I noticed a few kind of recurring patterns. One is some people said it was just too hard. It was too complex to understand. They didn't, un- they, they, they couldn't wrap their heads around it. It was too many steps. Uh, they, they didn't, they weren't tech savvy enough. They didn't have the time, uh, even to, to read the, the book and, and understand it. They, they just said it was, it was just too much. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, how can I make like a stepping stone? Like how can I make the, the junior version, the, the starter kit, so to speak? Um, And that ended up being, instead of trying to distill down the entire book and summarize the entire book, the best way to do that ended up being just get to, to, to really just get one technique, which is para, uh, which is how to organize, you know, notes and files, and then just explain in the absolute most simple, easy to understand language, how to implement that one technique.
0: Well, okay, so you actually open the book. By saying, if your organizational system is complex as your life, then the demands of maintaining it will end up robbing you of the time and energy you need to live that life. But most of all, the ideal organizational system would be one that leads to directly tangible benefits in your career. It would dramatically accelerate you toward completing projects and achieving the goals that are most important to you. In other words, the ultimate system for organizing your life is one that is actionable. And I think that, you know, just with the, like, endless stream of different productivity and note taking apps that that narrative is really left out of the conversation of what these things are for oh absolutely absolutely yeah i mean talk to me about you know one sort of the psychology of para and how para has evolved since you first came up with the concept
1: yeah you know so so to speak to your first observation i've noticed this too You know, this, this thing called second brains or PKM or tools for thought or whatever you want to call it has become such a thing. You know, it's become, it's become a niche, it's become a trend, it's become almost like a lifestyle, which is amazing to me. Like when I started doing this stuff, I didn't know anyone else that even did it or knew about it. I I was just this weird idiosyncratic thing that I did. Now I know tons of people that do, and it's sort of become a trend, which is great. I'm happy for that, and I played a part in it. But I, I think there's also a there's also a pitfall and a danger there, which is it becomes sort of like a hobby. You know, it becomes like the the equivalent of collecting coins or stamps or something. You know, something that is fun and enjoyable, and you get pleasure out of, but that has really no productive. There's no there's no goal that that helps you reach. There's no you know beneficial impact on your life besides just the enjoyment. And I just, I mean, I'm happy for people that enjoy this stuff, but I think that's a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of people. Most people, the vast 99% of people are just trying to live their life, do their job, advance in their career, grow their business or whatever. They're not trying to go in there and spend an entire weekend, you know, fiddling with apps and linking things together and creating knowledge graphs and meticulously tagging things and all this other kind of BS busy work that, you know, these, these software programs create for us. They're just trying to, just trying to be more efficient or or more effective at what they're trying to accomplish. And to me, that's what Para does. It's so simple that literally I know third graders that use it. Wow. Really? Yes. I, we had, did like a mini pilot for a third grade classroom. I think in like, I think Wisconsin or one of those states um, that they're using, they're teaching para to third graders.
0: What what other organizing methodology can you say that about? <laughs> okay, you, you got to expand on this because I I like I want to understand how a third grader uses para because that is probably by far the most interesting context. I like heard you talk about para. So talk to me about that. Like, what exactly does a third grader use para for? Yeah, so it it just
1: can be boiled down even further from the four categories. So I don't think they're actually using, you know, projects, areas, resources, archives. I think they're focusing on projects and areas. And I think they're just calling them, I, I, I forget the exact terminology, but it's basically like projects are like you, you, you do something such as an arts and crafts project and then you clean it up, right? There's like a setup and then there's an action you take and then you put it away, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, a beginning and an end, a stop and a start which a kid can completely understand. They understand yeah. the need to, you know, take out your little crayons and, you know, popsicle sticks and pipe cleaners and then the need to put it away. Yeah. But then there's areas which are like the duties of the classroom. Like they have duties, like they, you know, they they, they fold the little like placemats after lunch. They water the plants that they have in the classroom. They, uh, you know, open the, the blinds on the window in the morning and then close them in the afternoon these are sort of like recurring responsibilities. You know, it's a, very, it's a very low level responsibility, but still they understand that idea that there's some things that don't begin and end that are basically continuous that you always have to do.
2: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
0: That is such an interesting way of thinking, Because I've never thought about para outside of the context of a digital environment. Oh, yeah. These are some of my favorite metaphors, like cooking. Yeah.
1: You know, cooking. You're, you're, on that. So archives would be like if you have a deep freeze, you know, uh, freezer in your garage. You know, it's like preserved uh, for the long term, just as you left it. But it's completely out of sight, out of mind. Resources is the pantry right, things that are not super actionable right at this moment. But if you want to be able to access flour or pasta or salt or sugar or whatever, there it is. Um Areas I liken to the things in the fridge that are, you know, they'll last a, some time, um, but you probably want to go, you're going to want to access them and work with them in the short to medium term, right? And then projects are what's on the stovetop what's actually cooking, boiling, sauteing right now that are super alive and urgent and actionable right now?
0: Well, you know, the thing that I also am curious about is how Para has evolved since you first developed it, Um, you know, especially like with the role that AI is playing, because you and I were just talking about some of the weird things that I've been doing uh, inside of Mem with this, like literally simulating human roles and that kind of stuff. But Talk to me about sort of the, the progression and evolution of Para as a system as it relates to the evolution of technology and the progress that we have made. Yeah, you know, it's it's
1: funny. It's funny because Para in some ways you and I were sort of working in opposite directions, right? Like you, you from what you've said, it sounds like you're you're advancing the frontier. You're out on the Wild West frontier discovering completely new ways of interacting with information. You know, pioneering things, innovating on things. I'm almost doing the opposite. I'm going back, like away from the frontier, back to the, the big city, back to the settlement, you know, back into town and asking people, listen, there's amazing opportunities out there on the frontier. What is keeping you from, from exploring it? What is keeping you back here at home and not out there adventuring? And then trying to solve just the almost really basic what we would call, you know, easy level or beginner level problems that people have. Um, I am interested in the frontier, but the the, the point of this book pair is really people who don't feel that they're part of the digital economy, don't feel tech savvy, don't feel empowered by technology at all. In fact, they're often very scared of it, very intimidated by it. Um, and I think the reason I'm passionate about that, by the way, is my time in the Peace Corps and my time in developing countries where I just You know, if you're in Ukraine or Colombia or Brazil, the the places that I've lived and worked, you know, if you don't know how to open a web browser, if you don't know what a file is, you don't know what a folder is, then all the riches and the, you know, abundance of the Internet is of no use to you. So I'm, I'm pretty passionate about kind of that first rung of the ladder.
0: What about your own use of, of Para with the advances that we have seen, you know, with all our various note-taking apps now with AI being such a big part of all of this? Um, how's the the way that you personally have used the Para concept changed and evolved even since the, the first book came out? Gosh,
1: honestly, it hasn't changed that much for many years. Um, that's kind of the value of it. It's It's kind of so simple and basic that it doesn't it's not really subject to changing technology. Mm-hmm. Um, what I will say is, is is this: it's almost like para is not the best. It's not the definitely not the only way. It might not even be the best way of organizing information, but it's the minimum way. Yeah, it's it's like the minimum viable level of organization. So often, what I'll do is I have para, you know, on on various platforms: Google Docs, Evernote, and um, and my computer, my documents folder being the three primary ones. But then, so that's like the, that's like the, the minimal level. But then if I have a kind of information that needs more sophistication, right? That needs, I, I need more powerful capabilities to work with that information. Then mm. I'll get it from its place within Para and I'll sort of like promote it. It's yeah. like, I'll upgrade it into a tool that is more powerful. And that can be Google Sheets. If I need spreadsheet capabilities, it can be Notion. If I need databases and dashboards. It can be uh, Airtable if it needs to go into like our CRM for the company, or it can be ClickUp if it needs to be, if it's like a a project that we're collaborating on as a company. So I don't see as Para as like the the alt, it's sort of like the source. It's like, it's like the mine from which I mine the data, but then the data can go different places depending on what I need.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, in a lot of ways I think of Para, you know, as sort of the operating system of the second brain, regardless of what app you're using or what tool you're using. But the other thing that this makes me think of is the, the difference between frameworks and formulas. And I think that, you know, the natural tendency for people when they come across prescriptive advice and in, in books like building a second brain and the pair method is, okay, I'm going to take this formulaic approach. And I think that when you see these things as frameworks, they become a lot more adaptable because like your para and my para are wildly different. I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, well, so here's something that I, you know, one of my biggest sort of like, this is how, you know, Mem has become so useful to me. This is where I want to talk to you about sort of the challenges of Para because here's one thing that I found. Uh, you know, with Mem, I have literally tens and thousands of notes and you made a distinction in one of your blog posts, which actually became a foundational principle by which I actually built my second brain in Mem, where you made this distinction between hierarchies and networks. And what I came to, the insight that I came to was that hierarchies do not scale very well and that networks are infinitely scalable. So let me explain that in a bit more detail and I, I want to kind of get your take on this. So what I found with Para was that, you know, if I had to organize 25,000 notes in a hierarchical structure, eventually it would fall apart. Uh If I were doing that with Dropbox folders, for example. After a certain number it just becomes a mess to manage and you're back to the mess that, you know, you were trying to fix in the first place, which is you're spending more time organizing this information than, than using it. Whereas in a network based system, because everything is connected, everything is accessible and you yourself say that your goals are much closer to being achieved when all the information you need to execute, uh, your vision is right at hand in the book. So talk to me about this.
1: Yeah, this is a really cool principle. It was very eye-opening for me too. Um, it actually comes, I think I cited that in there, in that blog post, a book called Glut. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget the subtitle, but it was basically a history of information technology.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that I found so powerful. And he makes this distinction. I forget the author's name, but, um, that there's, there's kind of like these two basic structures that you see everywhere. Uh, like you said, hierarchies and networks. Um, and they, they coexist. They're actually complementary. They actually often, um, work together. Uh, some, like one of, one structure or the other is better suited to certain environments, right? So in some environments, hierarchies are more effective, more powerful in other ones, networks, in other ones, networks. I think it's, it's good to not, I think it's more help. It's more helpful. It's more empowering to not think of one as better than the other inherently. But more like their tools better suited to different circumstances. Yeah. Um, I will say, and I think the, the author does say this, that we, we are definitely in an era, like this whole era of history is a network era, right? Like for centuries, hierarchy, I think about ni- most of the 20th century, 19th century, 18th century, society was so hierarchical. The, ch- the church, the military school, everything was so hierarchical. That now, for this century, we're we're sort of going to the the other end of the other end of the spectrum, and now everything is a network, right? Mm-hmm. The internet is a network. Uh, our computers are networked together. Even the institutions of society are becoming a little more, you know, flat and egalitarian in in some cases. Yeah. Um, but you this is the funny thing. In a way, my work is a provocation. Because it says, wait a minute, you guys, networks are wonderful. Yes, they're good. Let's use them. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are still some uses for hierarchies. And that that's kind of controversial in this day and age. <laughs> <laughs> um but to, to for your specific point, here's what I'll say is I think for most people's second brain, which to me is not just one app, I really, I really insist that your second brain has to encompass all the different digital tools you use. Um, uh, I think for some of them, networks are more powerful. For others, you have to use hierarchies. Right? Like the documents folder on your computer. Um, you still need that. There's still some files that are just boring, kind of dumb files. You just have to keep. And I think I mean there's there's really not a very good way of having a network on your computer file system. Yeah, there there
0: really isn't. Like right? I, I
1: you're just sort of left with the hierarchy, and I think pair is the best way to do that. Yeah. Now I think knowledge and the way you're using it is definitely one of the most obvious use cases for networks, mm-hmm. right? Like ideas really specifically benefit from not being siloed, not being just in one place, being linked together, being uh, tagged, being sort of part of these emergent structures that kind of arise. Um, my only hesitation is it depends on the person. Some people just are, are not quite ready for that. Or they get overwhelmed by that. The just yeah. just the, the mental model of what is a network, how to work with a network, how to be how to make an, a network of ideas effective, I think is is still a little bit on the frontier. It's still a little bit advanced for a lot of people.
2: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt.
2: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. care.
0: Well, I'll I'll tell you, that is not surprising to me at all, because like this is the biggest challenge I have with Maximize Your Output students. Like I said, the 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 paradox of even having a module, you know, titled How to Organize Information in MEM is a bit bizarre because like it's a self-organizing workspace and getting people to embrace that idea is often very difficult because the natural tendency when they get in is, you know, I need to impose structure on this thing that's inherently structureless. Uh, you know, so I, I wrote this note titled nonlinear productivity for, uh, you know, our uh, users the other day, like I have an insiders group on, on the course, where I just share different things in mem. And basically, you know, what it was, is if you think about it, like the way that we have been taught to do damn near everything. And this is the reason why hierarchies, I think, have like sustained for so long is that we've done everything linearly, right? From the time we're, you know, in kindergarten to high school to, you know, college, it's like, okay, we follow this linear path. But the thing is that that is basically not suited for the ambiguous nature of creative work. And, you know, I'll give you an example. I was working on a blog post the other day. I, you know, I have the outline and all this stuff. And I, I thought to myself, I'm like, wait a minute, why am I stuck on this one section I can't get past? I'm like, you know what? I have a network-based tool. I'm just going to go work on the section that I know I can work on. and I'll come back to the other one later um, and that is, I think the thing that networks give you is you yourself told me in our previous interview uh, about this idea of following your creativity wherever it wants to flow. And I think networks do a much better job of facilitating that than hierarchical tools.
1: Yeah. I think so. I think so. And that's clearly d- the direction we're moving. I mean, it's, it's very obvious that network. I mean, folders are going to go away. In fact, was there's already, there's already, did you see that article where college students, like freshmen today, already don't know what a folder is?
0: So it's funny you say that, because I had Dennis, the founder of Mem here, as a guest, and he had mentioned that to me as well. And, you know, like, I remember I, right after Second Brain came out, I sent a, uh, a, you know, book idea to our mutual agent, Lisa, titled The World Without Folders, and she was like, yeah, there's no way. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I... And I told Cal Newport this. I said, you can't have a world without email until you have a world without folders. Oh, interesting. Say more. Okay, so if you think about the basic premise of a world without email, it rests on the idea of the fact that you want to get rid of what he calls the hyperactive hive mind workflow, which is this unstructured workflow, you know, that is basically um, dealing with intermittent messages across multiple platforms, Right. And the only way around that is in a network because everything is in one place. Everybody can access everything from one place. Um, so for example, if you're managing a project in a network based tool, you can quickly share information. You can quickly access information. You can easily, you know, have conversations about that information, um, without ever leaving that tool as opposed to, yeah, and this is a metaphor that I think I'd mentioned to you before. When I think about the way most people deal with projects is it's like going to a different grocery store to buy the ingredients for every ingredient for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich which is just moronic it's the yeah. height of the stupidity but the thing is that the i realized the root cause of all these issues with knowledge work uh you know knowledge worker productivity has nothing to do with distractions it has nothing to do with time management it all has to do with how we organize and access information mm. and so all the tools we've built up until now are band-aids uh, yeah. they don't address the root cause which is why i think network tools are are you know taking off but they create a shit ton of cognitive dissonance because it's so unfamiliar for people to think about to be to be able to organize information exactly the way their brain works is such a bizarre thing to most people. oh my gosh, oh my
1: gosh, yeah, I mean going back to y- y- your example like you you found that the tool you use, the network based tool is more powerful, and all these other benefits but think think for a second about how many building blocks. <laughs> that you need as a foundation. Okay, so
0: This is a really important point.
1: Yeah. Right. Like, like think about, you know, you Srini specifically, you have a something called self-confidence. You actually know what you're trying to achieve. You have taste, you know, and, and can discern which ideas are actually good ideas and which are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you have obviously a broad, you know, familiarity with technology. You're not intimidated by, you know, opening up a software program and, and learning it. It's like, all these things that people like you and me can take for granted. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not only uncommon. They're even uncommon among tech workers. I've noticed <laughs> it's crazy. Well, there's, there's people in the middle of the tech industry yeah. that you, you just, I don't know if you've ever like look, looked over, if you look over the shoulder of the typical even tech worker, how they use their computer, it's baffling. Like yeah. they don't know the, the, the first shortcut. They don't know things that, that just you didn't even think someone could not know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, to your point, like you made a really critical point here about the foundation because this is the biggest thing about a network that makes it so hard to understand the value is that it doesn't really work well until you had a critical mass of knowledge inside it. Uh, mm-hmm. it's literally network effects applied to notes is what I've described it as. I said, look, mm-hmm. you think about Facebook, right? Facebook would be useless if other people weren't on Facebook. And, you know, people say, oh, like, how can I connect my ideas? I'm like, well, you need other ideas to connect them to. So I came up with this idea called the three-stage knowledge generation cycle, which is basically critical, massive knowledge, which is roughly 50 to 60 notes, you know, uh, sufficient, which is like 500 and then abundance, which is like 5,000 plus. And I said, when you get to abundance inside of a network-based tool, that's when you can create at the
1: Mm, yeah, that, that's the power, but also the, the difficulty. Absolutely. Cause it's exactly. like, and in fact, that's, that's true broadly across these sort of information management tools mm-hmm. is there's typically a big upfront investment. Yeah. Right. To download the thing, learn it, change your habits and behaviors and workflows, start adding to it, organize that stuff. And then eventually we promise you'll get these benefits. That really doesn't, I mean, if you read books like Atomic Habits or just understand human psychology and behavior, that, that's just, there, there's a, a small number of people that can, you know, have the, uh, have the willpower and the self-discipline to wait for that. But most people can't. They need. Cool to be able to take an action and see a benefit like in minutes
0: so that actually was one of the reasons on the the new most recent version of maximize your output one of the things i did was i made 50 of my book notes available and i was like import these into mem so that people would actually start with something because i was like fantastic idea yeah i just thought okay you know what because i realized i'm like i'm working at an advantage that they don't have i'm like how do i give them some of that and i was like oh this is simple. I'll just make my book notes from the most relevant books to this course available. So there's like 60 book notes that they get um, as part of the course that they can automatically import into Mem and start using Mem's AI to interact with those book notes.
1: That is, oh my gosh, gosh, Mem itself should do something like that.
0: Well, that, I, I pointed this out to Dennis. I said, you're, I told him, I said, you don't actually have a product problem. I'm like, you have a behavior change problem because you're trying to get people to understand how to deal with information in a way that is so unfamiliar to them that, like, I call it, this is what I call a utility paradox where you, it's kind of like Twitter. I, I don't remember if you remember the first time you ever used Twitter. I remember thinking, I was like, this is the dumbest thing ever. Uh, <laughs> like, I was like, this is so stupid. I still think that. Well, yeah, I mean, like, like Twitter has gone through its phases. Let's like, but the thing is that I remember there was a period of time when, uh, Twitter was my favorite social network because I met lots of podcast guests on Twitter. Uh, I met my mentor Greg Hartle on Twitter. It took me a it basically was one of those things where I didn't understand why it was so useful until I had used it. Now keep in mind, this is like pre-Elon Musk owning Twitter and the shit show it's become today. Um, and for me it it's not that shit show because I just go on there and look at the people I want to see and see if they're sharing anything interesting. I mean, nowadays I hardly spend any time on any social media. Uh But I I think that that to me was one of those things when I I realized like in order to overcome this utility paradox, you have to use it and to get people to understand that. I was like, okay, there's only one way to accelerate this. We need to give them information they can start with. So it was like 50 books to start.
1: I love it. Yeah. Yeah, in the future, gosh, I think tools are going to have to. It's like software makers are always very reluctant to actually like do much with content. You know, they want to give you this just beautiful, clean, empty space. Uh, you know, you can do anything, but for most people, that's too much freedom. That's too much. That's too many options. They really need like a starter kit. They need the same way, you know, we give kids toys and blocks to kind of play with. We need that, that for, for information.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about two things. One, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time hearing your own insights, uh, and opinions on sort of the role that AI will play in the future of Para. Um, obviously for me, it's been instrumental. Like I was telling you, I can do a lot of the things that are inside a second brain using the AI inside of mem. Like I can create, you know, automatic outlines, that kind of stuff in one click. Uh, but I want to hear your thoughts on that. Like one, what is that going to be like? And let's finish this up with, you know, one. Very concrete example. You wrote a book in six months. Talk to me about how Para played a role in writing the Parameth.
1: Yeah, totally. So, a couple things. Um, I noticed that I, I work with AI every day, mostly ChatGPT, uh, and so does the team. I've, I've just been amazed. I've never seen a whole new category of, of you know tool get adopted so fast in in my company. Uh, we de- we depend on it so much, and so I'm sort of observing how we how we use it. And I noticed, okay, so with these tools, you have to, m- maybe not the case with mem, cause it's right there within the software, but with chat GPT and the chat tools, you have to provide context. Yeah. Right. Like that, th- the, the quality of the answer you get depends just as much on, you know, the context you provide, the guidelines, the examples, the, what tone of voice you want, like giving it an identity as it does on the intelligence of, you know, the underlying model. Mm -hmm. And so and so what does that look like? Well, today that with things like ChatGPT, that looks like getting a bunch of text and dropping it in a text prompt. Right. It's copy and paste, basically. In a funny way, we're like back to the origins, like it's such a simple, you know, tool of copy paste. And so what what do I need? I need loose collections of text that are broken up into small chunks and kind of loosely organized according to what I'm
0: trying to achieve. In order to use chat
1: GPT. Well, that's
0: exactly what pair provides. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's why I want you to convert to mem because it eliminates that. That's why I've been trying to get <laughs> you over my, to the dark side. I'm like, Hey, you know what? Although I saw you have a complimentary tweet about mem. I was like, and I think they even shared that in their newsletter.
1: Nice. You know, this should be the YouTube video that we, um, that we, I just, I just did a video with Marie Pouline that was like a uh, notion makeover. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, but I don't use mem. So we can't do a makeover. So ours should be like,
0: you basically like... Uh, I'll build your second brain from scratch. Ooh, that's a good one. Look, I'll look, rebuild look. your second brain from scratch. How about that? Let's totally do that. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that sounds fun. Like, that sounds like an interesting challenge. Like, I'll need a bunch of information beforehand. But I think to your point, like, uh, the context matters so much. Like, I ended up writing an entire chapter in the Artificially Intelligent Creative about how to communicate with AI because I realized it was like, Learning how to talk to AI is going to be a skill in and of itself. Oh, yeah. Because I, you know, I had a cousin who's an electrical engineer, and he said, you know, he said, at the end of the day, 50% of this is still dependent on human input. And I remember talking to my friend Matt, and he would get frustrated with the responses he was getting. I was like, you sound like a moron. What did you expect? I'm like, and I said, the thing you got to realize, it's like, it's basically like delegation of tasks. If you do a shitty job explaining how to complete the task, and the person who completes it does a shitty job, whose fault is it? It's yours. Yeah, totally. And that's the same thing that applies to communicating with AI. Yeah,
1: you know, I actually find uh, a lot of lessons that I've had to learn about people management uh,
0: as I've built a team over the last couple of years also apply to AI. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, as I said, you know, I'm literally simulating human roles now at this point, thinking, OK, yeah, you know, I ask. Because, you know, we had these album covers, and I wanted to know if it would be possible. I was like, this cannot be this hard. It's literally just a sketch of a person with a cool background and some text. And I found a way to literally use a series, and this was all with the help of ChadGBT, to convert a headshot into an illustration, create a custom background, and apply the text in 10 seconds. And I'm like, wait a minute. This means we can get rid of a $400 a month service. Damn.
1: Yeah, I know, you know, I have a similar example. We are uh, launching our Building a Second Brain self-paced course in Portuguese um, because I just launched my my book in Portuguese down there in Brazil. And we were just about to, I mean, translate the entire, like make a transcript of the course, translate it to Portuguese with a professional translator, proofread it, get a studio, get all the, the, the cameras and mics and everything, re-record and then have to re-edit and re you know, recreate the entire course from scratch. Yeah. And then someone sent me this tool called HeyGen. Uh It's just a video on 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 X that I that, that that I saw where it will not only dub your voice in a different language. Well, oh, holy shit! Seriously, dude, I this is the first such tool that if I could just get the the the, the functionality that I'm seeing in the demo, I'd be happy. Wait, Wait does this it actually
0: keep your tone of voice, like your voice? Not only that,
1: so it it it, it translates the language. I'll I'll send you the video afterwards. It translates oh, the language in your tone of voice. You only have to speak for like thirty seconds or a minute, and it it's got your voice, and it's very accurate. But then it changes your, the movement of your lips to match the new
0: language. Okay, <laughs> my thought. The reason that I am so curious about this is because I have thought for the longest time, I'm like, one of the most underrated growth hacks that we potentially have access to is making Unmistakable in other languages. And I was like, if we can translate it into Hindi and Spanish uh, and make it available and make it sound exactly like it does in the podcast, I'm like, that would basically open up half the fucking planet. Dude,
1: it's, it's for every creator, this is the biggest, this is the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, just imagine, think about, you know, what percentage of the world speaks English? It's probably just like half or something. No more than that, I'd say. I don't I don't actually know, but all those people, I mean, this gets back to my mission of like, think about if you're a person out there and you don't speak English. The internet is close to you practically. Yeah. What can you do with tech with online if you don't speak English? And and we can unlock
0: that door for them just using these AI tools. So what is it called? I'm gonna have to download this right after we're done because I'm so Like this is a moment, this is one of those last sort of things I've been like waiting for because we've talked to our team at ACAST. We're like, look, I'm like, I'm Indian. We need to make this available in India.
1: Yeah. First, let me send you the video. Well, I should do this later when we're not recording, but I'll send you the video demo. And then I actually just got in touch with their head of marketing, like not five minutes before getting on this call and emailed (laughs) them.
0: (laughs) Well, make an introduction then, please. Yeah,
1: if if I get a response cuz it's it's unclear if it's released for the public yet. That's the only thing.
0: Okay. Well, like I said, make an intro. Cuz <laughs> I have a pretty compelling use case totally. Uh, so, let, let's finish up with one final thing cuz I know you got to go get going here. One thing that you said, I think towards the end of the book, which I think was really, uh, telling, you said knowledge has been commoditized and made universally accessible first through search engines and now through increasingly advanced artificial intelligence, which means there's no advantage to knowing any particular piece of knowledge anymore. We're now entering the era of the wisdom worker. Sounds to me like that could be your next book. That's um, what,
1: that's what my agent said.
0: Literally, I, as I read that, I thought the era of the wisdom worker, that's the next book. Um, the, it, like I said, because I've been thinking about you know like another book on on organizing information called the Network Mind, which would be all about network thinking and how it's completely transforming all of this. But talk to me about this idea of the wisdom worker, what it means, and what are the implications of it for the future of knowledge work?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I haven't fleshed out that idea to be honest. It kind of just suggested itself, but I, I think what I was hinting at is where I'm I'm at currently, which is really that I find almost every problem that I'm working on and every kind of major challenge in my life and in my business uh, is a personal growth problem. Mm-hmm. That personal development, like real, you know, deep personal growth is kind of the bottleneck to everything in my life. Uh, and I'm doing, and I've done so much for that. Everything from, you know, meditation and going on meditation retreats to doing a ton of coaching work with, uh, a friend and mentor of mine, Joe Hudson. You might have heard me mention, um, that I've worked with a lot. Uh, in about a month, I'm going on my first ayahuasca retreat in Colorado, which is kind of part of that. I find that it's, it's funny. Like with the team now, the team that does everything, you know, we have, I have Monica, my COO. She, she handles the day to day business to the, to the point extent that many days I'm almost like well what am I for what is what is my purpose here and I find that one of the har- highest ROI things I can do is to just keep finding my blind spots my baggage my traumas my you know just things in my psychology because the the company and the team and my work in general is an extension of my own psychology it just is so I find when I unlock that in my own self suddenly, in the internal world, suddenly it gets unlocked in the external world.
0: By the way, you want to know what the synopsis for the era of the wisdom worker is? Because I literally just typed it into mem while we were talking. I Tell cut me. and paste that quote. <laughs> the era of the wisdom worker is a compelling exploration of the shifting landscape of knowledge work and in the 21st century. As knowledge becomes commoditized and universally accessible through search engines and advanced artificial intelligence, The book argues that the advantage no longer lies in knowing any particular piece of knowledge. Instead, the book posits that we're entering a new era, the era of the wisdom worker. In this era, the true advantage lies in not what we know, but in our ability to apply wisdom, the deep understanding and realization that comes from experience, introspection, and a broader comprehension of how different elements interconnect and influence each other. This book explores how this shift impacts various aspects of life and work from decision-making processes to leadership style, from personal growth to collective evolution. It offers insight into how we can navigate this new era, cultivate wisdom, and redefine success in the workplace and beyond. Wait, did you write that or did the AI write it? No, I wrote that. While we were talking, I just, because I wanted to, when I read that, I said, this might be your next book. And you're like, I don't know what the synopsis is. So I was like, Okay, let me give you an idea. Let's see what uh, Mem Chat comes up with.
1: Oh my gosh, how did you, did you get a transcript of what I was saying and then just pop it right in? No,
0: I had the quote inside of Mem, so I just literally typed, hey, turn this into a synopsis for the book, The Era of the Wisdom Worker. Oh my
1: gosh, send that to me. (laughs) I will. I don't have to spend a month writing a proposal now.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, man. I Like I said, if I can convert you to Mem, one, the team at Mem will be very happy, but I'm pretty sure I can make a compelling case for why you should ditch Notion.
1: Well, I only use Notion for team stuff. So it's sort of like a very part-time use case. But dude, I would love for you to, 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 to try that. I, I, you know, I did an analysis recently. Evernote is my fourth second brain platform that I've been on. Yeah. Um, but my average, uh, is usually five to six years each. And I've been on Evernote for nine years. So it's a little bit long in the tooth and I'm sort of like open. I'm more open to switching than I had been in the past.
0: What if I told you I could basically bring all of that information perfectly organized, accessible and usable to AI within 10 minutes?
1: I want to see it. I want to, I want to see, see what it
0: looks like. Yeah, I can do that for you. Like in literally that's something I can do in 10 minutes because it's Evernote. It's super simple. Perfect. This, this sounds like the, the, I think this
1: would make such good video too. It's like a little bit dramatic. It's like, it's kind of like switching your brain from one body to another.
0: Well, I'll show you the trailer that I did for Maximize Your Output. And I literally used Mems AI to come up with the like wording and all that. I was like, I want you to make this feel like an Apple commercial. Oh, send that to me. I'd love to see that. And then I was like, also give me every cut, every transition, every font that I need to use and tell me how to build in Canva and write it up like a moron was going to do this. And like, if you see it, it looks like something that took 10 days. It took like two hours. Oh, my gosh. Send that to me. I want to see it. I will. Uh, well, I know you got to get going. I want to be respectful of your time. So, as always, I want to finish with my final question. Uh, what do you think it is to make somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Oh, God. I think it's just fully accepting your essential nature and then just unapologetically uh, applying it or manifesting it in everything you do, surrendering to that essential nature.
0: Beautiful. Well, uh, where can people find out more about you, the new book, uh, all your work and everything else?
1: Yes. So the website is buildingasecondbrain.com. If you add a forward slash para, P-A-R-A, you'll find everything about the new book. Um, you can also go to buildingasecondbrain.com for my first book, for the YouTube channel, blog, podcast, all the usual suspects. Uh, and I just encourage your listeners to, if there was anything they heard in this conversation, whether it was, you know, we talked about super advanced stuff, but also very basic stuff. Um, I can pretty much promise you there's something in this for you. Just find, go after and pursue the thing that kind of caught your attention and, um, and see what these incredible, you know, software tools can do for you.
0: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.